Hey, remember us? It has been a while. My name's Jess Ong, and what you're listening to is the podcast of Spun Stories, a live storytelling night that's based in Darwin, the capital city of Australia's Northern Territory. There are six seasons of Spun Stories podcast, each filled with stories that catapult you over fences and into the backyards of everyday people with two things in common. They call the Territory home and have an unexpected, brilliant story up their sleeve. And this season, season seven, is no different. It's been a while between seasons for this podcast. As I'm sure you know, the last couple of years have been a bit wonky for the world. And although the Northern Territory has been pretty lucky in the scheme of things, we were still affected by the tentacles of COVID-19, mainly around the fact that there weren't as many opportunities for live events. And the other reason why it's been so long is in between the surge for sanitizer and face masks, I had a baby about 18 months ago. So my world and priorities flipped entirely. I went from being footloose and fancy free to becoming someone's mum. It's been the most exhilarating, terrifying, joyful experience and ignited something in me that I never thought existed. But it's also meant that my brain has been elsewhere. Anyway, we're back with stories that will take you to some extraordinary places, from Saddam Hussein's hotel to a hospital operating theatre room to a remote island in the Kimberley to the dining table of a family with a very big secret. Season 7 of Spun Stories podcast is everything you want in your ears. The traditional custodians of the Darwin region are the Larrakia people. We're in the thick of Baumba, or the rainy season, on the calendar of the Larrakia. It's when the electrical storms come rolling in on the regular, the green tree frogs keep you up at night with all of their flirting, periwinkles and mangrove worm are collected from the mangrove forest, and the black plum begins to fruit. The rain has been a bit slow to come in this year, so the days have been thick with heat and humidity. And other than heat and humidity, growing up in Darwin was pretty idyllic, you know. It was relaxed, there was lots of sunshine and plenty of storms. But it was absolutely mundane compared to the childhood of Veronica Ruampura. Veronica's dad worked in hotel management, which meant she and her parents lived in hotels all over the world, one of which had a secret tunnel and Saddam Hussein lookalikes wandering around. My father's uh, office in the Al Rashid Hotel was in the basement and to the side of the office was a metal door. Um, It was always locked and it was very thick and I used to always wonder what it was about. One day when I went into his office, the door was slightly open and I could see into a wide sort of tunnel. Uh, It was a tarred road and it was, you know, about two or three cars wide. And I asked him about it. And that's when he said that that was an underground tunnel from Saddam Hussein's palace, which is about 10 minutes drive away from the hotel to the Al Rashid Hotel, so that his vehicles and his entourage would come in unnoticed into the presidential hotel. Whenever Saddam did come into the hotel, you could never figure out which one he was because he was always surrounded by a bunch of other soldiers who dressed exactly like him and looked exactly like him. Um, So it was sort of like a couple of Saddams walking around. We lived in a beautiful apartment complex at the back of the hotel. It was a gated compound, which is very common in Middle Eastern countries for expatriate workers. 
Uh, we had internal playgrounds and everything provided inside that complex. There was something odd about our apartments. On the top floor, we had anti-aircraft guns, which were placed there to, in case of an air raid from an enemy country at any time. So even though Iraq was in between two wars at that time, the Iran-Iraq war had finished, the Gulf War hadn't started, there was always that sense. Um, you know, it was a military country. And under our apartments were basements, which were fully furnished. And, um, you know, we had linen, food, everything in case of such an air raid so that we could go and shelter if we needed to. When we were taken to school, we were taken in a private school bus that would take us through the city over the Tigris River. It was a beautiful city back then and then come back home safely in the bus and back into the compound. So a little bit like living in a gilded cage, I guess. Another thing I remember really clearly was when we first moved in, my mom put her hand above a cupboard and empty anti-aircraft gun shells fell down and she got really scared. She thought they were live ones, but they weren't. They were old ones from the Iran war, Iran-Iraq war. <clears throat> so that was the sort of place that we lived in. Um, August 2nd, 1990 started out like any other day for us in Iraq. Uh, my dad walked a few paces across to the hotel for work. My mom stayed home and I went off to school and came back in the afternoon. Uh, the kids, all of us hotel kids, we liked to play in the, you know, the massive complex that we had. And we had an old fire truck at the back of the compound that we had decked out. We'd put cushions in it and books and we'd spend all our time there in the afternoons just playing like kids do. And then in the evenings, we'd come back in when dinner was called and, you know, it was just a regular night. But we had no idea what the next day would turn out to be. So when we got up in the morning... It was my father's habit to always put on the news. And the news in Baghdad at that time was read out in English, in Arabic, and in um, French. So I was very used to listening to that while getting ready for school. But the news that day was completely different. It was just announced that Iraq had invaded Kuwait overnight. So Kuwait is a very small, tiny, rich, oil-rich country on the side of Iraq. And the moment they said that, we stopped everything we were doing. And I remember we all sat down in the living room and started listening. And you, you knew at once that this was really bad news, that this was something that was really going to affect everybody immediately. And they said that the Allied forces were going to come and gather and there would be a war soon. So it's weird. When you hear something like that, you're often quite numb and you just keep on trying to live a normal life. So I remember my dad was really worried, but he went to work. I went to school. So it's kind of trying to maintain the same routine, but it's not the same. Um, everything changed. We suddenly had soldiers everywhere, the lifts. We were under house arrest. Our money was frozen. My father would still go to work, but he was, you know, guarded by all these soldiers. And I went to school for a few days after that. But, you know, I'd sit in the classroom and suddenly one of my friends would just be taken away because their parents were leaving the trying to leave the country or the parents didn't want them to come to school anymore. And then finally just schools and everything stopped and things started falling apart slowly. Um, 
And I remember people trying, expatriates trying to escape through the desert. Like, you know, that was very dangerous. You didn't know what could happen. Um, my father stayed put. He said that we would wait for international aid flights to start taking people out of the country. Until then, we were in the presidential hotel. We were under heavy guard. We would stay put. So we did that for about three months. At the same time, um, in journalists from all of the world started coming into the Arashid, so from CNN, BBC, all those places. And all the oil workers who were stuck and couldn't get out of the country were also at the Arashid. Um, and I remember watching all the journalists, and I was fascinated by it all, and watching them do their piece to cameras and running around, trying to get their hand, hold on what was happening in Baghdad. The person I remember most distinctly was Peter Arnett from CNN because I watched him a lot because I had nothing else to do at that time. And that's when I really started getting interested in journalism. One day, my father came home in the afternoon really suddenly and he said, we, we've got a flight, an international aid flight out of here. Just pack one backpack and we're leaving tonight very quietly because you don't know whether you can leave. So remember I went into my room. I had a very nice room overlooking the city. Um, and I didn't mind leaving anything behind except my books because I loved my books. And I was very, very sad. So I just took one book, I remember, and just packed a backpack. And I always, I still wonder whether, I don't think the apartment ever survived that war, but I always wonder what happened to that place. Um, we went to the airport. Late at night, I remember, it was really dark and, you know, it's like rushing around and full of people trying to get out of the country. There were soldiers everywhere checking the baggage, detaining people, questioning people. So you come up in your queue and it was our turn and my father had a few hundred dollars in his hand. That was all the money we had that we could take out. I remember they took it from us and my mother got very upset and they gave it back. I'm not sure why, you know, in war situations, funny things happen. Maybe they felt sorry for my mother. They gave it back to us and we got on the plane. But even when the plane is leaving or it's going above and flying, until it got out of Iraqi airspace, you never felt safe. It was only when it landed in Amman in Jordan that you felt that, I can't even describe it, like that sense of like complete relief that you have got out of situation you'd never think you'd be in. So there was one night. Five years later, we were living in Colombo, Sri Lanka, which is my country of birth. Um, and I'd graduated high school. And I, was, I had my heart set on becoming a war reporter. Why? Probably because I was following the Iran-Iraq war so closely. And I followed all the stories. I was watching John Simpson and, you know, all these people and the books they'd written about the war as well. My mother thought that was a terrible idea because Sri Lanka was going through a civil war at that time, a very violent one. So she was probably very wise in that decision. She very tactfully. Uh, we were from a family of artists and architects. So she took me to my uncle who was an architect and said, look, enroll her in architecture school. She's got this crazy idea in her head. So I did do that. And I greatly enjoyed it because the artistic side of me loves that. And I did all that. But I missed writing, like every time I, I think about it and I thought, I have to do it. So I went by myself, enrolled myself part-time in the J school and I got my qualification and I decided I didn't want to hurt my mother. 
So I didn't do war reporting per se, except for a file a few stories from afar, but I went into journalism and I did both jobs. Again, one night, we're sitting down, having dinner in Colombo, normal Colombo day. I should probably tell you that the war in Sri Lanka was a very different war. In Iraq, the war was sudden. It hit you and you were just, you know, in this, in this thing you couldn't escape. But in Sri Lanka, the war was in the jungles in the north mostly. But every now and then there would be a bombing or an assassination in Columbus. You were never at peace, but it was a different war. So sitting down, the news comes on again and the news says that suicide bombers have come down uh, into Colombo and they are uh, attacking the Kolonawa oil storage tanks, uh, which are these huge storage tanks uh, with million dollars, millions of dollars of oil in Colombo City. Uh, and they say people should stay in their houses, lock their doors and not go out that night because these people could go anywhere. And I remember how frightening that was being again, you know, you escape from one country and then you come to another country and you find that you are in another situation like this. But in the end, you do go to sleep because there is nothing else that you can do anyway. We didn't sleep much that night. We just tossed and turned. And in the night, sort of the fear you feel at night is so different when you're in a dangerous situation to the fear you feel when the sun shines through. Um, and I got up the next morning and then the news came on and said that some of the bombers had detonated themselves and destroyed things and some had been captured. So that was the end of that episode of fear. For a little while, you felt safer again. So I guess these two times really shaped why I did journalism and the way I look at the world. But I like to look at those two countries and remember those both places for their beauty because Baghdad was before the war one of the one of beautiful cities that I lived in. Um, and there were cities in the north like Nineveh and Mosul, which you'll probably never get to see, which I can't even describe to you. And towards the north, there's a place called Kurdistan with snow-capped mountains, which is which is also very unique. So I remember those places. Um, and likewise, Sri Lanka is very beautiful and, you know, the wildlife and the beaches and wars are one thing, but places are always places in your heart. And I guess for me, the most important thing about this story for me is I tell it for the people that we left behind in places like Iraq, the people of those countries who could not leave um, I hope you lived and you survived it all. Thank you. Ah, see what I mean? What a childhood. And how impossible to not be shaped by those early adventures. Veronica shared her story at Spun's event at Darwin Festival in 2021, where the theme was After Dark. Story production in this episode came from Kylie Stevenson with sound editing and production by Gaia Osborne and music by Sam Carmody. We're one of the projects out of the Dynamic Creative Production House Story Projects and we thank Darwin International Airport for their funding support. At Spun, we acknowledge and are grateful to our first storytellers, the Larrakia people, the traditional custodians of the land on which we gather to connect through story. My name's Jess Ong. Thanks for listening.